This is the Disciple Makers Podcast. The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Disciple Maker, and Tony Twist of TCM International Institute hosted a track called Disciple Making Theology Matters. Here's the track session from TCM International Institute. Let me welcome you to our session <clears throat> this morning. My name is David Roadcup, and uh, wonderful to be able to be with you to share in this time together. I'd like to just begin by talking about the title of the seminar that we're going to be doing today and making a little bit of an application here. The title, of course, as you can see, is How to Teach People to Walk in the Spirit. And uh, this is uh, obviously uh, woven all through the concept of discipling without question. And this is actually a euphemism that Paul uses here. When he talks about walking in the Spirit, uh, notice he doesn't say, so I want you to lie down in the Spirit. You know, uh, no, no, I want you to sit down in the Spirit. You know, my heart doctor says one of the main things you can do to elongate your life is walking. He says, when you, and I said, you know, but there's not much aerobic in that, really. It's, it's pretty, pretty anemic. And he said, there's more than you think. So he said, if you can walk five nights a week, it affects all the systems of your body strengthens you, you know, keeps your joints lubricated. He said, so just do this, get out there and walk. Just get out there and walk. And the idea, of course, is that when we're walking, what's happening? We're moving somewhere. We're going someplace. And I think that's why Paul uses this term when he says, so, so walk in the spirit, you know, that you should be moving forward and, and making advancements and so forth, the whole idea behind that. I just have a note up here on the board from Springfield to Joplin. When I was 20 years old, I was... Um, youth minister at a church in Springfield, Illinois. I was a junior at Lincoln Christian College and Seminary, if you've ever heard of that school, and, um, uh, and, and a church of about 300, three days a week as their youth minister. One of the things that uh, I loved about our people was their warmth and their kindness, and we just had a wonderful fellowship, just almost problem-free, if you can imagine that, in these 300 people. One day I was sitting up on the podium there getting ready for the morning service to start, and uh, I, I was just gripped with a realization, even as a 20-year-old, you know, that uh, wh while our church was a wonderful, loving, re really warm place, I mean, I still have such a great uh, sense of that congregation. Um, for many of our people, it, it, was, it was simply part of their week, truly, you know. Like on Wednesday, they went to a rotary, and Thursday night, they went to PTA meeting, and, and Sunday, they came to church. That's what their parents and grandparents had done. And, and then, of course, we want to try to get out, if we possibly can, by noon so we can beat the Baptist to the buffet, you know, at, at, uh, when church is over. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, the, the idea was, uh, and, and, and the people, our people weren't bad in any way, shape, or form. It was just that we were massively plateaued spiritually you know, truly, truly were. And I remember praying and saying to the Lord, Lord, I recognize this problem. Uh, I see where we are. When I look at the writings of Paul and what we're supposed to be doing, especially moving forward, um, I, I know what the problem is. I have no idea how to fix this. I know we're supposed to preach and teach the Bible. I know that. But, uh, but how, do we, how do we move people forward? How do we get them to, to go to the next level? So fast forward then 10 years later, 
I'm teaching at a school in Joplin, Ozark Christian College was the name of it, and uh, teaching there. And two of my friends, and this is like 1974, something like that, two of my friends came to me from uh, Southern California. And they said, you know this issue we've been talking about, about helping people grow in their faith? We, We found it. We got it. Eureka. We know what it is. You know, It's called discipling. They said, here are two books and four tapes. And listen to these and read this. We're going to call you in a couple of months and uh, see how you're doing. Pick out your six guys and go for it, you know. So I did go through the material, and they called me and said, what, uh, what do you think? Are you ready to go? And I said, you know, very, very novel idea. Now, remember, this is back in the 70s, okay? I said, very novel idea that we would, um, like, pick six men and do with them what Jesus did with the 12. I think it's a great idea. I said, that's, it's not my style, you know. I mean, it's not what I do, but, uh, but I think it's a great idea for someone. And they said, L- let, us, let us think about this for a moment. The creator of the universe who knew every educational philosophy known to man in the history of the world did this with his 12, but, but it's not your style. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> and I said, well, I, I wouldn't quite put it like that, you know. And, and they said, no, you, know, you just said it. You said it. We heard you, you know. And uh, so I said, all right, I'll go ahead and try. And so I have to tell you that I chose six seniors from the, the student body there, and I launched into it, and I won't go into the details, but it just crashed and burned in the middle of second semester. So bad, we, we just stopped meeting. We just canceled the group. You know, two, two of the guys were very, very angry at one another, got in a fist fight in the dorm, I got a call at 11, 11 o'clock one night, come to the dorm, and it just, it just dissolved, you know. I, I called these guys, and I said, hey, here's how your wonderful experiment went, you know, thanks. <laughs> and and they, they said, no, okay, they said, get right back up, try it again, try it again this fall. And a gentleman sitting right over here, Rick Lowry, raise your hand, Rick, was in my second D group, you know, like, like four, 60 years ago, was, was in, you know, and, uh, and we've been together all these years. Um, so I chose six, six other guys, Rick being one of those, and you all, let me just tell you what happened. Let me tell you what happened. At the end of even just that first year, all of the things, many of the things I had read in the writings of Paul and in the Gospels about seeing someone awaken spiritually and develop a hunger and start really giving them their hearts to God, all of a sudden I saw it happening in the lives of these men. And I said, I said, here we go. We, we, we got it. We figured it out. So let me tell you what I've been doing. I have been preaching and teaching this and, and meeting with people and talking about it for 40 years. And I have gotten almost no traction. Uh, I mean, up until a number of years ago. Guys would say the same thing. That's a great idea, you know, but uh, yeah, yeah, not me. We're too, uh, you, know, you know what my schedule is? You want me to add one more thing to my schedule? This is impossible. And, uh, and so it has caught on. I have to tell you that Rick has discipled groups of men for his entire adult ministry and left a major impact in places where he has been. And so I found it. Uh, let me just tell you that I got a telephone call, I think, from um, Bobby's uh, assistant, from uh, Gary, uh, what, three years ago, maybe something like that. I was in Vienna, Austria with TCM. And he called and said, we're putting a group of guys together. Uh, we want to meet for a year, and then we're going to do a conference and, and just see if we could ever get traction with this whole uh, discipling uh, idea. And so a number of us, some, some of us are here who were in that group, actually. And, uh, and let me just tell you, last year we had, what, 450, I think, at this. You know, and I stood up in the back of the auditorium yesterday, 
And I looked out at that full auditorium. Y'all, I'm just telling you that you, you can't do this through good, good strategy and effective planning. I'm just telling you that the Holy Spirit is behind this movement. The Holy Spirit is making things happen here way beyond what we can do in the flesh. And, uh, you know, I have, I have never been more encouraged and more enthusiastic and more sold on the very thing we're doing now. You know, I, I'm just sorry that I spent those first 10, 15 years, you know, in ministry doing the programming thing. And as somebody mentioned yesterday, you know, programming is okay in its place. I mean, there are Bible studies and fellowship things that pull us together. I'm just telling you, telling you though, there is nothing, nothing after discipling definite groups of men for the last 40 years. There is nothing that will transform your people into the image of Jesus Christ like the model of Jesus for ministry. Really, it's just as simple as that. You know, and I'd like to just jump right in to our outline here. Rather than using a PowerPoint, I thought I would send an outline home with you. Please feel free to use this material any place. Teach it, preach it yourself. Uh, I think we need to begin, first of all, with our ultimate goal. And I just want to stop and ask this question this morning. Uh, what is it that as Christian leaders in the church, we are actually supposed to be doing? Uh, I mean, the question would be this. When everything is all said and done... And we're standing at the judgment bar giving an account of our life and work. What, was it, what is the ultimate goal we're supposed to be accomplishing? You know, it, it is the transformation of life of the people we have been responsible for who have come to know Jesus Christ. You know, I grew up in an era my first 10 years where the main thing was to have as many people as you could in the largest building you could with the largest offerings you could, and that was success. So I ran my youth ministry uh, like that for years, only to find out that kids came to youth meeting and seemed to enjoy themselves and came to the retreats and so forth and then smoked pot during the week, you know, and were disobedient to their parents. They, they loved what we were doing at the church. It's just that their lives weren't changing, you know, and that, that's why I got onto this idea that if, if my ultimate goal is the spiritual transformation of life in, in the lives of the people with whom I'm working, uh, the programming system alone will, will not get it, will not get it. I want you to know that I love preaching and have preached my entire career, you know. Today, if I, as the senior minister of a church, think that uh, good preaching alone will transform the lives of my people, what I found out is that it won't. It, it, it's a cornerstone in terms of the overall approach to bringing someone to transformation, but I just want you to know that it's just too tough out there in the world. It's too hard to think that 30 minutes of even great exhortation is enough to combat what's going on in, the, in our culture, in the lives of our people. Now, please don't leave here saying, well, he doesn't believe in preaching. Uh, that's not true. My life was changed in one 30-minute sermon at, at a week of church camp you know, when I was a junior in high school. So I really believe in preaching. What I'm saying is it, it isn't enough. It's one of the cornerstones, but we have to add to great preaching and great morning worship services in terms of basically Jesus' model. So the question is this, are the lives of the people for whom I am spiritually responsible really experiencing transformation in their hearts and lives? In other words, when they get out on the job and they're playing softball and they're golfing and they're socializing, are they really an example of Jesus Christ hard? in those kind of situations. That, that's really what we're shooting for. Uh, let me tell you that I have a dream, I have a dream, I have a dream, and I hope I live long enough to see it somewhere because I know this can happen. 
I'm, I live right outside of Cincinnati in northern Kentucky, Florence, Kentucky. And what I know is this, that I look at the cities of Indianapolis and Lexington, Louisville, Cincinnati. I was in Atlanta for eight years. Do you have any idea how many churches there are in Atlanta? How many large churches, uh, white churches, black churches, run over 10,000? I mean, it's just incredible what's going on there. And other cities also. And I'm asking myself, in cities like that, why have we not taken those cities for Jesus Christ? Really. I mean, I look at thousands of people who are in worship on Sunday morning. Why are we not impacting our culture? Why is the culture spilling into our church the way it is? You know, it kind of comes down to this more than anything else. There is a huge battle ready to take place. And on one hill are 10,000 troops of the enemy the troops of Satan. They are all 25-year-olds, thoroughly trained with every weapon uh, that they could possibly cover, uh, carry. And there's a valley there, and on the other hill are all of God's troops. And His troops also, 10,000 there, they have every weapon that, that, that they could possibly use in that battle. The only problem is God's troops are all kindergartners. Did you ever see a kindergartner carry an M1? You know? Uh, an AR-15, AR it doesn't work out real well. I mean, sometimes I just wonder if the Lord isn't sitting up on His throne saying, you know, if we could just only get the people in our churches to grow up in their faith and become mature and become the fragrant aroma of Jesus Christ everywhere they go. Brothers and sisters, I, I don't know of a place where this has happened. I'm telling you, I know that it can happen. I know we can take cities for Jesus Christ in, in love and in service. You know, and in really, really helping people come to, uh, to know Christ the way they need to. So as, as we look at that and we understand the transformation is the key, since we are focusing on theology here in our track, I just want to do a couple of scriptures together, and then, then we'll go ahead and make some application. But when we're thinking about discipling what we need to do in people's <laughs> lives, we have to, of course, go to Colossians 1.28. I'm sorry, that's supposed to be 29 there. Um, yeah, uh, my computer, um, as my computer's fault, I'm sure, you know, 20, 28, 28 and 29. If the Apostle Paul were here today and we said to him, what, what, is your, what is your goal? What were you trying to accomplish when you were on earth? I think he would say this is his mission statement for ministry. This is what he was trying to do. He says, we proclaim him, that's the Greek word for preaching there, we proclaim him doing three things. There are three things we're doing, admonishing every man, and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. So doing three th- the word for admonishment here is, is a word with intensity. It's, it's straight to the point, uh, exhortative preaching. And teaching every man, this is the same word used in the Great Commission when Jesus said, and teach, teaching them to observe, same word, didasco here, with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Look at what he says in verse 29. For this purpose, he says, for this purpose I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Now, I'd like for you to, if you don't mind, to circle the word here that for complete. May we present every man complete in Christ. This is an interesting Greek word. I'm sure that you have seen it before on a number of occasions. The word is the word teleos. And the word literally means complete, finished, done, mature, 
uh, prepared to do what it was meant to do. The word teleos means that something has grown up and is finished. Uh, One author wrote and said, when you had fruit sitting on your cabinet and it was absolutely right to the place where it was exactly ripe and if you didn't eat it that day, it, it it would go bad the next day, that fruit is teleos. It's finished. You know, the word is used for women who are ready to give birth, um, uh, able to reproduce after their own kind, uh, mature, prepared. The word was used for rabbis during the time of Christ, for parents also, for soldiers in the Roman army. Uh, That's the idea. Jesus is on the cross. He shouts out with a loud voice just before he died. To Telestai, it is finished. It's done. And that's the word Paul uses here when he says, you know, I want, you, I want you to be complete in Christ. He says, I want you to be mature, to be finished, to be grown up, to be mature, to be able to handle things that are going on. He says, for this purpose I labor. Just a word of encouragement here. The word for labor here is the Greek word korpos. Korpos. Now, the three words for labor, for work in Greek, one of them, korpos here, means to labor to the point of complete exhaustion. You are completely, you have nothing left. You know, after, after you dean a week of senior high camp, you know, you know how you feel on Saturday morning? That, that, that's pass. you know. After every, elders, every, every, every deacon's meeting, that, that, that's what we're talking, no, I'm, I'm joking. Uh, it's the idea that I have worked and I am completely, completely exhausted. You know, so on those days, uh, brothers and sisters, when you feel like you, have really, you are really washed out, uh, I would say you're in good company there, you know, with Paul here. So what is Paul saying? My ultimate goal in ministry is to help people come to a semblance of maturity. Someone said yesterday, you know, sometimes when you work with fewer people with more intensity, you actually wind up with better results in the end. And that's that's exactly what we're talking about here. Paul's continuing focus in Colossians 2, uh, this whole idea, as 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 you have received Christ, so walk in Him. He mentions four Four concepts here. These are all actually participles. He says four things. As you have received the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted, first of all, getting your roots down deep, now being built up, number two, established, number three, and overflowing, number four. This is a great expository sermon outline, y'all. If you need something for Sunday, here you go. This is really, really good, good stuff. That whole idea there is that we are growing and changing, getting our roots down, getting a solid foundation uh, is, is what Paul is saying. That's what I want people to do. Now, we'll do this just, just quickly here this morning. Ephesians 4 is an amazing text about discipling. It, it is unbelievable. I'll just do this really quickly if you want to read along there while, while we're talking. He says in verse 11, for you to really have a healthy, growing church... He says, you've got to have the proper leadership. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. He says, it's basically this, as the leadership of a church goes, so goes the church. Y'all, let me just tell you, the speed of the leadership team is the speed of the congregation. Trust me. You know, it's just so important. So, training goes on here. Verse 12, he talks about the proper plan. And the proper plan is this, that ministers and leaders in the church are not simply to do ministry. You know, that's how I was taught uh, when I was 18, 19 years old. Your job is to go to a church and do the ministry of the church. You're getting paid. No one else is, so you should do the ministry of the church. You know, later on I came to understand this verse. Our main ministry is to train other people to do the ministry and then be a playing coach in that situation. 
You know, it's not that I don't do ministry, but if I am not training and bringing people into our volunteer corps, brothers and sisters, trust me, I'm not doing ministry correctly. I really am not. And, and I was in the trenches in the local church for 22 years, so I understand the recruiting, training, developing, motivating of volunteers. I personally thought it was one of the three hardest parts of ministry, working with volunteers. But do we see today the sleeping giant, the sleeping giant in our congregations, in the giftedness of our people that is not being tapped? You know, so really taking a good look at this verse. Then he talks about the proper goals here as well. Proper goals. And he lists two. He says, first of all, is the unity of the Spirit. That's the first goal, the unity of the Spirit. Uh, Obviously, you know how important this is. The bottom line is that no church, no church, no church will grow and thrive if there is disunity in the congregation. Won't happen. So the elders and deacons of a church uh, are, 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 I think, uh, 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 requested by the Lord to manage the unity of the church. And when there is a problem, the worst thing you can possibly do is just ignore it. Ignore it. It'll go away if we ignore it. Quite the opposite. It'll get a whole lot worse if somebody doesn't step in and do a Matthew 18 and take care of whatever needs to be taken care of. Really, just so important. Unity, uh, unity of the uh, Spirit, he says. And the second goal that he talks about here is the idea of getting to know more about Jesus Christ. He, he literally says here, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Y'all, uh, stop and think with me for just a moment. The knowledge of the Son of God. What, what, what is that for us today? Uh, grow in a knowledge of the Son of God. What is that? It's basically this. It's studying the Gospels. It's just pure and simple. Studying the Gospels so that we know Jesus' life backwards and forwards. What, why He came how he ministered, what he liked, what he didn't like, what gave him joy, what made him angry, what frustrated him. You know, we know Jesus' life backwards and forwards, and we simply begin to live like he lived. We start modeling him. So he says, you grow in the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man or woman. Guess what word he uses here for mature? Yeah, teleos. There it is again. To a mature man or a mature woman. And then if he stopped there, that would be fine. But look at what he does. He goes on and says, uh, 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 to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. <laughs> First time I read that with understanding, I want to say, uh, thanks, Paul. You know, I mean, put, put the bar down lower here where we can reach it. You, you all, well, what is he saying here? He's saying that you will grow in your understanding and knowledge of Jesus. And what, what could we say? Scripture, actually, is what he would maybe be talking about there now. So you become a mature man or a mature woman to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I want you to study the life of Jesus and I want you to grow in your faith as a believer to the place where someday someone will come to you personally, you personally here today and say, you know, I I know that Jesus is not here. I, I, I understand that. But if he were, you remind me so much of what he must have been like. Brothers and sisters, I, I think that's, that's, that's where we need to head. That's what we need to be doing. Yeah, that's what we need to be doing. Coming to know Jesus so desperately, to love him so desperately, to learn about him so much that we come to the place where people come and say, you know, you, you remind me so much of what I think Jesus would have been like. 
You might say, that, that's quite a stretch. I have a 50-year-old woman in my small home Bible study group who's a realtor, who is just one of the most wonderful Christians, wonderful, wonderful ladies, wonderful businesswomen, a biz, businesswoman that I know. And in a house closing six months ago to a married couple she had sold a house to, after working with them for three weeks, at the closing, the woman said to Kim, you know, I hope I don't embarrass you if I tell you this, but I'm a believer in Christ, and you, you, you remind me so much of Jesus. Yeah, and I said, yes. It's exactly what we need to see. That's what we're looking for here, you know. So you all, the whole idea here is that we are growing. We are really seeing radical things. And we go on then in verse 14. Look at this. He says, as a result, see what he says there? As a, as a result of what? He says, as a result of having great leadership team in your church, spiritually led by the Lord, having a definite plan, energizing the people in your church, and having the right goals. There's always unity in our body. We, we work to have unity. But we're also maturing the members of our church to walk in the Spirit to the place where they really are impacting people, and they are the fragrant aroma of Jesus Christ every day uh, in their homes and outside of their homes. You know, the, the idea is, is that that's where we need to be headed in terms of what Paul is talking about here. That's simply where we need to be going. He says, as a result of these three things, as a result, we are no longer to be children. Y'all, will you underline that, that if you don't mind, on your outline, that we're no longer to be children. I will tell you that one of the greatest problems in the church of Jesus Christ is what Juan Carlos Ortiz, in his book called Disciple, wrote. He said, the great, one of the greatest problems we face is the perpetual childhood of the believer. The perpetual childhood of the believer. Uh, that's what's killing us right now across the board. That is why we are not taking cities. And Paul says, so here, we are no longer to be children. You know, this problem is not old. Uh, it's not new that we're having here. And then he describes children. Tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, trickery of men, craftiness and deceitful scheming. He says, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. We are to grow up, he says. It's right there on your paper. We are to grow up, grow up, grow up, he says. We are to grow up, grow up, grow up, grow up, grow up. We are to grow up, grow up. Would you just repeat it after me? We are to grow up, yes, to grow up, grow up. In some aspects, I'm sorry, did I misread that? How about this one? In a few aspects... How about this one? In aspects of your choice. <laughs> now we're getting closer, huh? Yeah. The word for all here is the word pasa in, in the text. If you literally translate that word, you have to translate it all. <laughs> That's what the word means, in all aspects. So we are to grow up in all aspects. You know what? In the words I use with people, in the words I use, in my words, in the way I treat people, in my spending, in my attitudes, in my dependability, in my study, in my driving. Uh-oh, wait a minute, did, I, did I just hit a nerve there? Should we have an invitation to him? Some of you can come forward at that. <laughs> yes. As you grow up in all, here's what the Lord is asking for when he talks about this. He's asking for everything, everything. 
Uh, that's what he's saying. Grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head. And then he goes ahead and says, and, and, and if you use all of the wor- workings of the body, he says, according to the proper working of each individual part, doing what the previous five verses have talked about, he says, all of these things cause the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. See what he says there. Somebody comes to me and says, tell me the best church growth book you've read in the last five years. I say, I've got it, hands down. It's the book of Ephesians. Yeah, best, best church growth book I've read. The idea is that if we begin doing what this conference is talking about and critical, personal purity and seeking the heart of God every day, my heart to his heart, if that's our foundation and we start doing what these, what these verses talk about, we don't have to worry about whether our church is going... Uh, church growth will happen as a byproduct of this. It will just happen. You know, like you don't have to stand in front of an apple tree and beg it to bear apples. You know, it's the nature of the tree to bear apples. It's its nature. And when Christians have the, their in, interior world transformed and their nature is to love Jesus more than they love sin and to follow him, the, the byproduct, it just happens, the byproduct of it is that the church is healthy and that it grows. We, we reach more people. So you all, Ephesians 4 is such a powerful powerful statement here about the idea of how to have the church grow, how to see the church grow, how to help our people walk in the spirit. Now, the idea then basically is this. We have a healthy church, and one of the foundational pieces of the entire congregation is that our educational philosophy, our transformational philosophy is the concept of discipling. And I mean it in the original form, you know, where you personally have two, three, four, five, six people of the same sex, you're meeting with every week, praying for them, every week pouring yourself into them, spending time with them, challenging them, training them, encouraging them, disciplining them, whatever you need to do, to the place where then they are able to reproduce themselves in another group, and and then in another group and so forth. That concept, the the foundational stone that all of this is built on, I'm just telling you, you all, I believe that we can take cities. I believe we can take cities. Just a very quick sidelight here. I did have an amazing, amazing, life-changing experience uh, working on the board of Promise Keepers. I was preaching in Boulder, Colorado, just gotten there. I went to a prayer breakfast at the invitation of my men at a country club. Couldn't find a seat, got a cup of coffee, went over to one open seat over by the wall and sat down. And I said to the guy next to me, hi, I'm brand new in town. My name is David Roadcup, pastor of Boulder Valley Christian Church. And he said, sure, well, great to have you. He said, my name is Bill McCartney. He said, I'm the CU football coach here. Now, I knew that was significant, but I had no idea uh, that one year later I'd get a telephone call from a couple of guys to meet Coach Mack and seven other guys at a Perkins Pancake House at 8 o'clock on, on a Tuesday morning. And we met, and Coach Mack said, I have a dream to see the football stadium where I play ball on Saturdays full of men doing two things, recommitting to their baptism, recommitting to their marriage vows. Those are the two areas we're going to shoot for. And, uh, and he said, that's what I see. I don't know how to do that. And he said, you guys get paid to do that. Can you help me? And we said, yeah, we, we know how to do it. We need thirty grand and the football stadium as quickly as you can get it. And in about a week, he had, he'd raised $30,000, and we launched Promise Keepers. You know, I had prayed for a revival among men and women for years, and I kept praying, but I gave up hope I would ever see it. I really did. I prayed, but I thought not in my lifetime. On Friday nights, we would have 
60,000 men in a football stadium. And on Friday night, we had worship time, and then a guy would get up and preach a sermon every, every Friday night on how to accept Jesus as your Savior. And, and they would say, if you don't get this piece, not much else through the weekend is going to make any sense to you. And then I would, I would get up from where I was sitting and run down to the front of the stadium where the stage was, and, and I would have a ringside seat, you know, as thousands and thousands and thousands of men came forward weeping, crying, you know, uh, uh, talking to our counselors, you know, uh, uh, just, just this massive, massive... I'm standing there looking at this on Friday nights at about 60 of the conferences I went to, just thinking, you know... I, let me just tell you that when the Holy Spirit decides to move, it is awesome. It is unbelievable what happens when the Holy Spirit really and truly comes in. And, and I just think that in our lifetime, it might be very possible for us to see things happening here in our country and other countries as well that we may have envisioned but never really thought honestly would happen. I'm just telling you, you all, I am living proof. I've seen it with my own eyes. I know that the Lord can do unbelievable things through godly people who will fast and pray and be obedient and ask Him to show up and to do things. I, 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 know, I know that that can happen because I've lived through it myself. So there's a whole idea. And then, of course, our last scripture here, the ultimate goal, of course, is the transformation of life from Romans 2, which we've talked about. Now, the issue then, bottom line, is simply this. How do we make this happen overall generally in terms of a church philosophy? I would say also if you're, from, if you're teaching in a Bible college or seminary, I think, these, I think these same principles apply to the students we have. You know, when we move beyond you know, just issuing degrees and we start training our students for transform, transformation of life, I think we will all have taken steps in our seminaries and, and colleges truly. You know, what are the catalytic elements for really walking in the, in the Holy Spirit, for really seeing people change? Well, first of all, main question, uh, letter A under, uh, under 2 down at the bottom, <clears throat> what develops spiritual maturity in the lives of our people? I mean, when we're looking at our congregation of 500,000, 100, whatever it might be, I think getting up at 33,000 feet over our church and, and asking this question, what is it that really transforms the life of people into, into the, the image of Jesus Christ. You know, uh, we've talked about a number of, of, of specific things here, but if I am uh, structuring uh, a plan, a strategy, what really goes into that? Well, what I'd like for us to do is just take a look at some big pieces we need to move into place that I think really will make an incredible difference. And we must begin, however, by simply talking about the movement of the Holy Spirit and His power in terms of the foundational work of our church, the fact that we bathe our church in prayer and fasting on a regular basis, and we do ask the Holy Spirit to come into our church and to really really do things that are so far beyond what we can do, really, with good planning and effective strategy. I think that the introductory idea behind this point is simply this, that we need to make sure our people understand what Jesus' definition of discipleship is. You know, what, what is it that Jesus is asking from us? I think if we begin there in our discipling efforts, uh, then we, we have laid a good foundation. I have um, five or six men every year at Cincinnati Christian University up at Cincinnati. 
Uh, my main ministry is with TCM, a uh, professor there. Uh, that, that, that's my, my main work. Uh, but I adjunct uh, still at Cincinnati and uh, live close enough there that I, I select five or six male students out of the seminary, and uh, we just begin meeting. Uh, we meet Tuesday mornings for two hours, and uh, this coming uh, weekend, uh, tomorrow, I'm going to northern Ohio uh, to do an elders conference up there, and out of the guys I have, only two of them were available, but they're going with me, and I'm going to be using them. Uh, they, they have a segment to present, in, 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 so we have the time up there, the time back, uh, all that time to work together. You know, when we're thinking about, about having a group like that, we meet the fir- very first time uh, of the year and get to know each other and so forth and have a warm-up meeting, go over all the details, pray together. Second meeting, th- th- this is what we cover. This is what we do. We get out. I give, I give a one-page handout for the notebook every time, and we talk about Luke 9, 23 and 24 and, and what basically is going on here, what, what's happening. Jesus says this. He says, If there is anybody here within the sound of my voice who would like to follow me, let me tell you what I need from you. I need for you to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. By the way, the person who wants to hang on to their lives will lose their lives in the end. But the person who is willing to give up their lives for me will truly find life. So we then break those verses down almost word by word, phrase by phrase. You know, Jesus says, if there is, if anyone, if anyone, you know, just remember, uh, you all, Jesus was a gentleman. He, he never forces anybody, never gets your arm up behind your back, shoves you up against the wall and says, you know, you will accept me as your Savior. You know, uh, he just doesn't do that. He says, you know what, I'm just, I'm making you an offer. If you want to find something better and you want to find life, I'm, I'm making you an offer. Here's what, if anybody wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and that, that's the hard part, you know, take up, what, maybe take up your cross weekly, you know, how about take up your cross monthly, semi-annually, you know. Now, it's a daily thing, isn't it? We all know that. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Now, big question here. Did the people to whom he was speaking, you know, context before content, did the people to whom he was speaking understand what he meant when he said, take up your cross? Well, the answer to that is, yes, they did. The Romans were using crucifixion extensively during the time of Christ. And we know that when Jesus was a teenager, uh, a village uh, killed a Roman squad, squadron that was out. They, they jumped them, killed them, and the Romans came and destroyed the city, a small village they had, and they crucified uh, one of those Jews every 30 feet for 10 miles down a road. And that, when Jesus was a teenager, that happened near, near Nazareth. So he understood clearly what crucifixion was, and Jesus says this. He says, if you really want to follow me, you must Deny yourself, take up your cross daily. Everybody understood clearly what that meant, and follow me. So here's the idea. We have to help our people kill their will. It's as simple as that. You kill your will, and you begin to live for Jesus Christ. So with these six guys I have, I say to them, here's what we need to do. This is the starting point. Nothing else we do this this year together uh, will make any difference. If we haven't gotten this taken care of, if we haven't died to ourselves to really begin to live for Christ. And so I, you know, guys around the table, you know, I just say to them, I, I just want to know, 
and you're not, you're not answering me. I am not the, uh, the, the point here. The point is uh, talking to the Lord, connecting with the Lord. You know, have you gone through the process intellectually and emotionally of dying to yourself and really allowing the life and the grace of Jesus Christ to fill who you are? Have you intellectually and in your emotions, have you made that step? Have you driven that stake, made that decision? That doesn't mean we're perfect and we struggle like crazy, you know, but if we've made the initial decision to die to ourselves and really live to Christ, we're on, we're on the way. <clears throat> then I have 20 minutes of a Promise Keeper sermon by Joe White, who did a first-person sermon on the cross builder who built Jesus' cross. And it is probably the most dynamic presentation I've ever heard of these verses. And I show that to the guys, you know, and then I just say to them, okay, we've studied it. We've heard about it. Now I want to ask you, where, where are you? I want you to think about it. Where, where are you? If you're going into the ministry and you miss this step, uh, it, 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 it's, it's not good. Have you in your heart and in your life died to yourself? Really? Have you died to yourself and killed your will and allowed the will of Jesus Christ to come in and take over your life? I, I need to ask you that. Now, here's what I want to do. I say this to them. I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. And if you have not made this decision, I'm giving you the chance right now to step over the line and to drive the stake. So let's all bow our heads. I'm going to, I'm going to voice a prayer, and I'm going to ask you uh, t- to give up your life for the sake of Jesus Christ and for the sake of lost people. Okay, let's pray. And then I just pray a prayer, inviting them and giving them the opportunity to drive that stake. You know, you all, I'm just telling you, and, and I'm not saying we have to be harsh or angry. This idea is not preached in our churches. I'm sorry. I, I know this is a little harsh. You know, I'm just so frustrated. Well, what, what if people don't come back? That, that's, that's not your responsibility. Whether people come back or not, your responsibility is to clearly enunciate the message of Jesus Christ. That's what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. And the results are left up to the Holy Spirit. And so, he, so here's the deal. Here's the deal. You need to preach and teach these verses to your people in your churches so they clearly understand what Jesus asked for. I know you all have studied and preached on the easy believism, you know, and the fact that no, you know, we don't want to offend people in our churches. We don't want to talk about some of the hard issues. You all, I'm just telling you this. I was asked to preach a sermon in the church where I attend in Burlington, Kentucky. Minister called me on Friday. He said, do you have a sermon on God's plan for marriage? And I said, I've got three sermon series on marriage. I just happen to have a sermon on God's plan for marriage. He said, I'm calling an audible. Can you preach Saturday night and Sunday? You know, can you just step in? I said, it's Friday. He said, he said how close is your sermon file? And I said, it's in the next room. And he said, all right, so what? I mean... So, so, and in the sermon, I simply said to, you know, we have about 2,400 at our church. I simply said, you all, here's God's plan for the church. This is in the, in the text of the sermon. Um, one man, one woman for life. That's it. That's God's plan. One man, one woman for, li- one woman for life. And, uh, you know, I, I said, uh, in terms of people who are doing same-sex marriage, you know, uh, I just want you to know the sermon is God's plan. That's not God's plan. 
<clears throat> I said, if you are gay, if you're a homosexual, please know we love you. And we want you here and we want to work with you. We want you to be part of our family. And it's grace and truth both. It's grace and truth. And that's about what I did, you know, in the sermon, uh, in the 30 minutes uh, sermon that, that I was preaching. You all, Facebook blew up after church. I was called a racist, a bigot, you know, uh, all kinds of terrible things. So our minister gets on Facebook and says, you all, please, would you please not do this here? You know, call us and come in for an appointment. Please don't do it here. And then people got back on Facebook and said, don't tell us not to do it here. We do this anyway. And, and it got worse, you know. So we kind of waited a couple of days. You all, we are, we are a wonderful, biblically solid, mainline, evangelical Christian church, Church of Christ from the Restoration Movement. And you can't believe the number of people in our church who just could not take that. Are you kidding me? We, we, we don't ordain homosexuals here. We don't uh, marry same-sex people. Is that, is that really what you're telling us? You know? you all, the result of that, it's not my responsibility. I mean, if I don't stand before my people and tell them exactly what Jesus said, I am going to be in a world of hurt on down the line, when I stand before God at the judgment bar and I give an account of my ministry. Now, again, can, can I just say, I, we, I don't have to be angry. You know, I don't have to be um, uh, uh, wanting to get a pound of flesh. Here's the thing. I just need to be clear. I just need to be clear about what Jesus is saying. And, and I, I'm telling you, I don't want to stand before the throne, you know, and have the Lord say, you know, in 50 years of ministry, you, ne- you never preached on these words. You never told people what I said here about taking up your cross. So, you all, I think this is where it needs to begin, that with our people, we make sure they understand clearly the idea of dying to themselves when we're talking about getting people to walk in the Spirit. Then, moving into the four key experiences, and this is where I'd like to take just a little bit of time today. I think that there are four experiences that if we will put people through uh, in the context of a discipling relationship, I think it will transform their lives. As a matter of fact, can I just make, make the statement? I'm willing to stand up here today and say this. I promise you that if you will do these things out of Scripture, that it will have massive impact on the people with whom you work. You know, I can't say this will transform the life of every single person that you work with. I can't say that. Jesus, our Lord, was only 11 for 12. Okay? So you will have failures. You will have people you know, who, who don't follow through. But for the most part, in the main, I'm telling you that, that this will really do it. The place where we begin uh, must be <coughs> scriptural content. And it's just helping people understand and know and, 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 and internalize the Word of God. This is where we have to begin, making sure we know that people are exposed to good Bible teaching, good Bible preaching, and that happens in several different contexts. So that's where we must start to make sure that happens. Now, I have a whole section in here on the the spiritual disciplines, and I put this section in because I really wanted to emphasize the idea that one of the key points in understanding when it comes to discipling is if I can teach my, my, my people, and I think the whole church really, but if I can teach my people how to practice the spiritual disciplines, you know, these are the age-old classic practices and habits that can be traced all the way back to Abraham. We go all the way back to Abraham. We, we, we begin picking them up. 
You know, out of many, many lists of spiritual disciplines, when you study the life of Jesus, Jesus practiced almost all of the disciplines, the mainline disciplines, almost all of them. There's no record of him ever journaling. You know, he wrote in the dust, but that, that's not quite the same thing. Also, the idea of, I include stewardship in this list. I think we need to teach our people about the life, of, the idea of stewardship of life. And he did get a coin out of a fish's mouth for a temple tax or something. That's about as close as we can come. You know, a couple of different things here. But when you look at this list, he memorized the word of God, you know, in the wilderness. He didn't have to, when Satan came, he didn't have to get out a scroll and say, hang on just a minute. Let me see if I can find this verse I want to quote to you. You know, Jesus just quoted scripture because he'd memorized it. You know, and so the idea of building the word of God into someone's life. Uh, Let me just mention a word about prayer here. That's so critical. I, I'm preaching to the choir. I know. Uh, can I just share this with you? No relationship on earth can be sustained without communication. It, that, that's just the bottom line, you know. And that's why prayer is so critical to us. You know, I've never met one Christian ever in 50 years of ministry. Never met one who came to me and said, hey, "You know that prayer thing? You know that prayer thing? I've got that figured out. I'm, I'm cooking." You know, three or four hours a day, I'm there. Do you know why prayer is so hard for all of us? It isn't a lack of personal discipline on your part. That's That's not the problem. The problem is spiritual warfare. I want you to know that when the weakest saint offers a sincere prayer to God from his heart, that the heavenlies are stirred by that, truly. You know, when we ask God to go to a hospital room, and be around a couple that are really suffering. Brothers and sisters, angels are dispatched from the throne of God. And they fly through the heavenlies to that, to that hospital room and are there ministering. You know, yeah, prayer, prayer uh, old saying, prayer changes things. It truly does. We should never lose our confidence in praying and in prayer. It's just one of the, again, one of the cornerstones of making disciples and growing uh, spiritually. The idea of worship, you know, where we are involved in Corporate worship and personal worship as often as possible. Obedience, obviously. Somebody said in a, in a talk I heard the other day, obedience is God's love language. I thought, that's right. That's true. You know, yeah, it, it truly is. Fellowship, you know, one of the things we'll see is this, that you can't grow in your faith if you're not connected. If you are not connected relationally, it's impossible for you to grow. You know, so that's the whole idea behind fellowship. Fasting, fasting separates the men from the boys. It really does. I grew up with a wonderful, loving mother who prayed me into the Lord, prayed me into the ministry, and prayed for me every day, you know, for, uh, up until a year and a half ago. And the one thing about her, she's from Kentucky. She was an awesome cook. Oh, man. I mean, she made unbelievable um, dinners. And she would always say, this is how I show you my love. This is how I show you my love, by, the, by these things, these homemade desserts that, that I make and so forth. So then Scripture comes and says, yes, and to draw close to God, you must uh, experience fasting. Fasting. And um, I say, God, is there some other way we can get together here? You know, um, uh, I'll tell you, out of this whole list, fasting is the hardest discipline for me. But years and years ago, uh, I found the power, and I found out the, about the power in fasting about how it can really move the Lord and move the Holy Spirit and make such a difference. It's an awesome tool, you know. 
and we just don't use it very much. You know, incredible tool. The di- discipline of secrecy, Dallas Willard was really big on secrecy. Doing acts of love and kindness for other people without them finding out it was you who did it. This is Matthew 6. Matthew 6. It's a great, stretches people. It's a great discipline. Journaling. <clears throat> um, uh, Gordon MacDonald has a great chapter in his book, the, um, in his book um, Ordering Your Private World on journaling. It really broke me loose a number of years ago. And I will tell you that journaling has, can have a massive impact uh, on your life. Now, a very interesting point at th- this particular time, they're finding out that in, in the world of psychology, psych- psychiatry, counseling and all, that uh, unbelievable healing takes place very much at a therapeutic level when someone will sit down with a pen and a notebook and write down their experiences at the emotional level. Uh, incredible. And so they are using that. I mean, in non-Christian contexts, they're, u- they're using journaling. And uh, McDonald simply makes, makes the point that all kinds of lessons have come to him from the Holy Spirit in the quietness of him taking time there to write down his journey with God in that notebook. So journaling, solitude. Solitude is simply fasting from people is all it is. And that's wonderful. If you, if you don't practice solitude, let me recommend Alray Nguyen, Henry Nouwen. You know, the um, priest from the Netherlands, uh, he's got about 50 books. They're all small. Every book talks about solitude. <laughs> it really does, even if it's just part of a chapter. And he is my mentor on solitude. And so uh, Rick and I and a number of our people from our church, uh, there's a monastery not far from our church that will rent you a room and give you lunch for $15 a day. So we get over there in the morning and spend the entire day there just in, in, in a room by ourselves with the Lord, solitude, prayer, fasting, seeking the Lord, journaling, filling our hearts with Scripture, meditating on the Word. I'm just telling you that you talk about, about power packing your batteries, you know, where there's nothing like a day of sol- or a morning or an afternoon of solitude to really refocus you and bring you back to the center for sure. What was the name of the guy with the 50 bucks? Uh, his name was Henry, H-E-N-R-I. N-O-U-W-E-N, Henry Nowen. Mm-hmm. And, of course, service you all, and we all know about that. Stewardship. I would put stewardship in this list for sure. It's taking these disciplines and, and weaving them into the lives of the people we're discipling. But it's also part of the whole idea of Bible content. Uh, you all, I know you know about the idea of the incredible lack of, of Scripture understanding and knowledge that people in the church ha- has to have today. Uh, it's desperate. Now, you're aware of the fact that many, uh, many younger people, say 20 and below, do not know who, Mo- who Moses was, who Noah was, who Jonah was. They don't recognize those names. You know? I work with a lot of church planners, a lot of church planners in my classes. And uh, I say to them, I am not chained to Bible school or vacation Bible school, stuff that I grew up with. Those are simply delivery methods. That's all, that's all they are. You know, but when you're planting your new church and all you're, all you're going to do is have a great morning worship service for the first year, you know, uh, all I want to know is w- what will you do in terms of conver- uh, conveying scriptural content to your people more than that one half hour a week? It's got to be more than that. So I'm not tied to those delivery systems. I'm just making this point. We've got to get our people into the word. We've got to, got to figure out a way, whatever works for us, I think it's the foundational stone. And teaching them about theology, 
about doctrine, and that, those don't have to be dry topics. It can be very exciting, the spiritual disciplines. You need to take your people through the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the description of a person who is teleos. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. You know, it's a description of a kingdom man or woman that has come into some semblance of maturity, you know, teleos. So the idea of a commitment to Scripture, getting Scripture into the lives of our people. The second area then, of course, that we really would need to work on is simply the idea of fellowship. And by this I mean the idea that we are connecting people relationally however we can do that. Uh, small groups, small groups is a great idea. They do need to be well managed and taken care of and the leaders need care and so forth. We need to be very, very careful about taking good care of our small groups once they're planted and once they're taking root and, and, and growing. Um, d- the discipling ministry that we would have, uh, when, uh, men's groups, women's groups, uh, church, even if you still have a church choir, the worship team, you know, getting people connected. You know the church growth information about when somebody comes to your church and they seem to be a little interested, you have six Sundays to get them relationally connected to somebody else in the church. And if they don't do it in the first six Sundays they're there, they will go right on down the street to the EV Free Church and try down there. So having some system where we receive our visitors and get them connected as soon as possible, fellowship. Also, in terms of working with the idea of fellowship, let me just mention, we do need the social interaction from getting out of your car going into the worship center. That's about, what, seven, six or seven minutes of very, very uh, uh, surface conversation, which is good. It's healthy. It's, it's uh, uh, oil in the gears and relationships. But th- the situation is we need to deliver systems that help our people go deeper. Hence the idea of small group ministry, very much so. I found out that people in, on worship teams and, uh, and, and teams like that also can, can cultivate that if it's modeled for them, for sure. But... The main thing is that we help people make deep relationships here, connected relationships. It's just so important. Uh, After working in a very concentrated way with men, men's ministry of one kind or another, over the last 30 years, here's what I know about men. Two things. First of all, men will stop cussing, smoking, drinking, uh, dipping. You know, they'll stop doing all of those things as they come to Christ. For many men, their checkbook is the final bastion that falls to the lordship of Christ. It's the final, final one that they finally give up. And, and, and of course, uh, very good, many of them do. The other thing is that for many Christian men in the body of Christ, they have many uh, associations and they have many, uh, many p- people they would call friends. But I run into man after man after man who doesn't have one man who would take a bullet for him not one really close friend he can call and really pour his heart out to. It's part of our American culture. It's part of who we are as men. But brothers, let me tell you, one of the main things that has helped me personally grow in my faith is having men around me who, who I know, I know that living in northern Kentucky, if I had a major tragedy in my family, I know that there are eight men in Atlanta, Georgia, that could be at my, my house in about nine hours who'd be there in 12 hours. I know. You know, I know I could call Rick. I could call Tony. I could call a number of men, and they would immediately be at my house within hours if I had a tragedy. Every man needs to have guys like that in his life, everyone. And you have to cultivate those relationships and work at them. That's the level of fellowship I'm talking about here. In addition to that, then, <clears throat> the whole idea of service, 
is absolutely vital that we're involving people in service, you know, whether it's cultivating their spiritual gifts or recruiting them for ministry teams. This is always such a, such a frustrating thing. I will just step up to the front of the line today and confess my sins. And my sins are that when I was in located ministry, I many times called on the same people way too many times to do something because I knew they would say yes. You know, I never forget, I called, I called a couple's home one night and I said, hi, is Janet there? Bill, and he said, yeah, she's right here. He gave, gave me the phone. And I said, Janet, I just wanted to call you and tell you what an incredible job you did uh, at, uh, at uh, redecorating our nursery area. You know, you just took that whole thing on with a couple of friends. And I just wanted to say thanks. Thank you so much. And she said, oh, man, I'm so glad to hear that. And I said, oh, oh why? And she said, Dave, wh- whenever I hear you on the phone, I just always want to say to myself, what does he want now? <laughs> And I, I, I admit my guilt. I am as guilty as all get out, you know. It's figuring out how to do the hard work of bringing more people into our ministry teams. Here's the deal. They found out in the latest research that when you involve someone who has never been involved on a ministry team before, two things happen. First of all, they financially commit more than ever before. They will give more money to the church when they're involved. Secondly, they will do an emotional buy-in to the church that they may have not done before. And that's what you want from every single member is the emotional buy-in to, to, to the life of the church. The last area then, of course, that we simply would, uh, would focus on, I would just call this leadership training. You might say, well, that's kind of interesting in a list like that. The reason I put it here is that I know for a fact that when you start involving people in leadership training, it always, it always affects them uh, to a certain level in their spiritual life and growth, always. Now, I would, I would highlight this, brothers and sisters, because I would say this is one of the major downfalls in the body of Christ today, leadership training. I have a, a very significant, wonderful ministry with two other guys where we train elders in churches around the country. Uh, we just released our seventh book on, on elder ministry this last summer, trained uh, over 5,000 elders all over the country, uh, have 45,000 books in circulation right now on elder leadership. And uh, I found out through doing this ministry the last eight years that the way elders, if you're a Baptist, I'm probably talking about your deacons. Is that right? No doubt. You know, the, if you're uh, your elders, your deacons, um, I found out that the way the elders are trained in most of our churches is they watch what the elders before them did, and, and that's what they think their job is. So most elders who come in to, uh, to, to their, their position think their main job is going to meetings and praying over the Lord's table, both of which are non-scriptural jobs, you know. So the idea that we would really train our elders, we'd really train our small group leaders, we train train our worship our worship team, you know, to train people who are who are involved in youth ministry, our youth ministries. Uh, I know that when we offered uh, leadership training, it just pours right into the circulatory system of people's lives and really helps them grow. So the question then is this: in the people that you have in your church, but more specifically for our purpose here, when we're talking about the, the six people that you have, the six women, that you're, four women you're discipling, the six men, four men you're discipling, whatever, uh, if we will put those people through these steps, 
and make sure that these elements are woven into their experience, uh, I can almost promise you that it will heavily impact them spiritually and relationally, uh, for sure. Now, what I'd like to ask you to do, just just on down the line, is simply this. Uh, Get out your church role and get a ministry team together. And I know if you're in a church of 10,000, I know this is going to be really, really tough. Let me just tell you that there is software Tons of software out there that will do a huge amount of this for you. But if you have a database of all of your people, a great way when we're talking about shepherding and taking care of the people in our church is simply to go over every person in the church, you know, what, 18 and older, whatever age you want to put on it, and ask yourself, we have Tom and Mary, a couple in our church. In terms of Tom and Mary, how often are they being exposed to Scripture in any seven-day period? How many times would they go to a good Bible study? How many days out of the week are they having personal devotions at home? You know, and just think about that. Are they, are they connected in terms of fellowship? You know, do they have people that they really are connected to emotionally and spiritually? Uh, are they involved in any service uh, team at any level, maybe inside or in some cases even outside the church as well? And are they involved in any leadership uh, event over, uh, over a year? And I will tell you that this will give you a great indicator of how we're doing in really reaching our people, moving them to the next step, and, and, and moving them along. So you all, just kind, of a, just kind of an overview of the experiences that I think people, people need that will really help them. Now, with all of this said then, let's bring the encasement of a discipling relationship around everything we've talked about to this point. The beauty of the choosing a specific group of people and closing that group, you know, I mean, I've got this year, I've got five guys in my group. It's a closed group, you know. You begin meeting with them on a regular basis. We always begin with food, always. I'll remember that food in the Old and New Testaments, food and fellowship always go together. Fellowship is always had in the context normally of a meal of some kind, you know. And so the idea is we always start out with a um, small breakfast uh, Tuesday morning at 9.30, and we have a catch-up time, re-entry time. Here's a question we always respond to. How, today, how are you doing, really? What's going on in your life? You know, let, let us help you if you need help. We can pray for you or rejoice with you, whatever. And then we always do a study of some kind. And I run this particular group because of its uniqueness. They're all seminary students on two tracks. Track number one is developing their spiritual lives, hence the the spiritual uh, disciplines. Track number two is how do you lead a church? How do you lead a church? If you're an associate or the senior minister in your context, how do you lead biblically? And those are the two topics we talk about for the entire year. You know, we, we always have a healthy time of prayer. And let me tell you what I do with my guys that's really interesting. Sometimes we stand up with our hands up in the air. I know this is not the restoration tradition, but... It's, it is commanded by Scripture, so, you know. Isn't it interesting that Scripture in the Old Testament and New Testament commands us to raise your hands to the Lord? Just, just a, a thought there. So, you know, we stand up sometimes and, just, and pray like this. Sometimes we kneel. Uh, most people have never in their lives prostrated themselves before the Lord. And that's unfortunate because we see it in both Testaments, you know. I was leading a minister's retreat about a year ago, about 25 guys, and we got done. We're having a concert of prayer together, 
And I suggested that we just move all the chairs over to the side and we all prostrate ourselves on the floor to God as we pray for our churches and our families. They, they said, uh, like, do you mean get down on the floor, to lay on the floor? Is that what you're saying? And I said, yeah, yes, that's exactly what I'm, let me just suggest. So they did. Even the old guys, they, they, they did. You know, they laid down and we had our, our time there. A couple of them said to me, you know, I have to tell, I've never done that. It was really interesting. I've never done that. So, so we pray together. I, ha- I have to involve the guys in, in, my, in my life. So tomorrow I'll be taking some of them on a weekend, uh, just a one-day tr- elder training conference. Uh, every December we have the guys and their wives to our house, to our home, for a great big Christmas dinner blowout with a white elephant gift exchange every year, which is so corny, but, but it, it can be fun if it's, if it's done right, you know. Um, uh, uh, we, uh, we have them over for supper. Uh, uh, we meet them for dinner. We'll go. I have one guy in Columbus, Ohio. So one time this year, we'll drive up there and take this guy and his wife out for dinner and just spend that, spend that time together. And you fold them into your life and you make them part of who you are and you share your heart, you share your vision, you share your successes and you share your failures. You pray for one another and you model a loving, kind spirit you know, for the guys and you just model exactly what you want them to do. And, uh, and so all of this built into the context of a discipling relationship. You all, let me just tell you, let me just tell you, I really believe we can do so much exceedingly, abundantly beyond anything we can imagine. I, I don't believe those are just words on a page. I believe that that can happen. It can happen in our lifetime. And that, that's, I know, that's our, our prayer together. W- with your permission, can I pray a prayer of blessing over you today and over your family and your home, church? Uh, pray with me if you would. Heavenly Father, how I thank you for every man and woman in this room. I thank you for their heart for you, for their love for you, for how far they've come in their faith as we all are on this journey together. Father, I just want to pray for every person, for their spouse today, for their marriage, for their children, for their grandchildren. I pray for their churches and for their ministries and for their work. I pray, Father, that you would be in their homes every single minute of every day that your love and blessing and anointing and grace would fill their homes. Father, help us to know that you are so willing to do massive amounts of ministry work in our churches and in our cities and in our country and in the world. And Father, that's what we want. And we are struggling and we are working and we are seeking ways to do that as effectively as possible. I pray, Father, for protection for every person in this room that their guardian angels would be on duty. I pray that you would strengthen their hearts and you would bless them and nurture them and stretch them and grow them. Father, convict us as well. Father, I pray you would take us to places we have never been before in our relationship to you. We love and honor you today, Father. Thank you so much for this time together. We pray that you would just continue to use and guide us in every way. And we ask all of these prayers in the powerful name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. That message was from TCM International Institute's track called Disciple Making Theology Matters at the National Disciple Making Forum. You'll find dozens of other great resources like this podcast at discipleship.org. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.